Hello and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. I release new episodes every second Monday. Please subscribe to the show wherever you like to get your podcasts to remain updated. If you want to contact me, you can do that at Pat Cleaver on Twitter. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook and message me over there, or you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. This show is always going to be free to listen to and download, but if you would like to support me and help out with covering the costs of production and hosting, there's a Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash soundofthemoment, and you can make monthly or one-off donations there, and that is all very, very helpful, so thanks to those of you who already do that. This is episode number 33 for the 4th of February 2019. Pianist Flores Capaina is my guest. He has just released a new trio record called Synesthesia. Let's begin with some music from that. As you'll hear in our conversation, Flores chose not to name his pieces, but to number them instead for this record. So this particular track is number nine, and it features guest vocalist Janneke Stauter. Steeds weer 
pianist Flores Cabana is my guest today on the show. Flores, thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, yeah, I always like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit. Uh, can you tell folks a bit about who you are, what you do, uh, where you're from and all that kind of stuff? Uh, so uh, I'm a pianist and a, a composer. I'm living in Amsterdam right now and I'm... Um, I'm 23 years old and mm -hmm. I've uh, been studying jazz piano at the conservatory in Amsterdam. And I finished my bachelor last year and right now I'm doing classical piano at the, at the conservatory, uh, which in, I'm in my third year at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I have my, uh, professionally I play with my jazz trio, so it's a jazz piano trio um, and we play around here in, in Amsterdam. Yeah. And we just released our second album. Yeah, cool. That's quite a unique thing, right? Like you're 23 years old and you're already releasing your second album and you just had a release show in the BIM house, which is quite a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people wait like for decades to get a chance to play on what is the greatest stage in the country. Um, like how, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't know that we need to go back to the whole uh, Princess Christina Concours thing because that's probably, you're probably tired of hearing that stuff <laughs> of like whatever young prodigy nonsense that people throw at people. But uh, you've like been somewhat active on the scene for a very long time for somebody your age, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, I guess, but um, the thing is I grew up in The Hague. Mm -hmm. So um, in that time especially, and now still, but in that time there was quite a lot of jazz going on. Uh, yeah. A lot of very traditional jazz also, which was uh, for me a, a super nice environment to get used to how yeah. to play jazz just from the from the basics. Um, so I, I, I would go to sessions a lot uh, when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, then the Precious Christina Concours thing of course helped yeah. a lot uh, to get some concerts. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So you, uh, I didn't realize that you came from The Hague. Um, I feel like like the story that you're telling me is somewhat of an echo of like some of my experiences somehow, which is that mm -hmm. I remember being in high school and going to sessions until three in the morning and sleeping yeah. through my like <laughs> high school lessons the next day and stuff. Uh, and and a sim similarly, I think I was really obsessed with the tradition at the time. Yeah. Um, and I can only imagine that, the, I mean, The Hague is kind of renowned for uh, for its traditional scene, or yes. at least it was and probably still is, I suppose. Yes. Um, so how how has that experience been for you? Because the record that, I mean, we're going to get to talking about your record, mm -hmm. but the record that, you're, you, that you just released, um, I wouldn't say that it doesn't have any connection to the tradition because obviously every, it, it does, but... Yeah. Like, not, not maybe not that obvious. It's not something that you would expect coming from somebody who like describes himself as having grown up in the Hague. So like, yeah. is that something that the yeah I don't know. Maybe you can speak to that like that transition that kind of transition that happens yes uh, between fully diving into the tradition and then finding new directions. Yeah, sure. Um, so indeed, I was also like that in The Hague and I was very much into the tradition and also obviously inspired by the players that I heard. Yeah. Um, and my teacher actually was Peter Bates, who was a, a, yeah. a fantastic piano player, uh, but very, very traditional and a very... Uh, but I, and, and still, I have so much respect for what he can do uh, in, this, in this idiom. No, absolutely. Um, um, but then when I came to Amsterdam, um, I had a few years of still diving into to the tradition very deeply. Uh, and I would have lessons with Ferdinand Povel just before he retired. Um, yeah. So that was very, and, and of course he influenced me very much. And he was, um, he is uh, uh, quite a, a person who, who has a certain taste about music. Yeah. For and those who aren't aware, Ferdinand Povel uh, used to be the head of the saxophone department at the conservatory for years and is one of the kind of leading figures of the like old school jazz scene in the Netherlands. Yeah, I right. So, but he would tell me, of course, about uh, what he would like and would not like. And then I would kind of yeah. uh, at least uh, eat that information yeah. um, and digest it. And then later, um, the transition actually started for me when I started writing original music mm -hmm. um, for the first record that I made with the trio, um, which was still quite traditional. And then um, 
two years later, what happened was that I started studying classical music. Yeah. And then just the, the something happened there, um, being that I would hear lots of amazing music where there was no improvisation. Yeah. Um, and that really got me thinking about uh, what I actually want to write and how I want to use improvisation in a different way in my writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where the, the transition started, I guess. Yeah. And so, like, do you... Do you feel like there was something helpful about like the kind of single-mindedness of being super focused on the tradition long enough to kind of digest it before moving on? Like I know that that was kind of my experience. I feel like I at, I was kind of rejecting a lot of what was what was actually happening around me because I wanted to dive so deep into that and that then then I could let go of it having digested enough of it to mm-hmm. not like to have those roots is that something that you relate to yeah although i i wish i was a little bit more open-minded um because uh you don't make friends like that uh, <laughs> that's, that's probably true yeah um but yeah i mean I'm, I'm very happy that that it went like that for me although i would have not liked someone to tell me at some point like okay you know it's cool that you're diving into this but don't judge the other guys uh, yeah or other styles and be aware that there's so much more that's just as great. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's kind of good to have the vision of both sides of the of that argument, right? Because then when you then break out of that super traditional thing, then yeah. you don't you have a kind of more friendly gaze upon the people that are still deeply into that. Yes. Thing, right? Yes. Yes, um, absolutely. And there's I have so much respect for both uh paths. I mean, you can you can make uh yeah you can equally choose any and and you can make great music yeah no that makes sense um but so like what is it that pushed you to go and study classical music because you you seem to say that it was because you studied classical music that your mind got open to certain other directions but what made you go to the classical department in the first place um in the first place i had a great teacher um at the jazz piano department uh that's taught me classical piano because every jazz pianist does a little classical and um and i was actually quite uh um i I liked to practice for this subject and and it was Mm. also i guess a little easier to practice for that subject because it's very clear what you have to do in some ways Mm -hmm. um and certainly when you're searching for yourself or what you have to do in the jazz thing then thinking a lot and then you feel like you don't play piano enough and then classical is like a very nice uh, uh, way out. But then uh, later I I really discovered the music and I fell in love with a lot of the music. Um, and then I I heard about David Kuyken, who is a, the head of the department. Actually, yeah. he was the head of the department um, in Amsterdam. He's still around, but um, he's not the head of the department anymore. But anyways, and he I asked him for a lesson and then we sat down and then the moment he uh, struck the piano, it was um, like amazing, amazing <laughs> sound, and yeah. um, and that that's just uh, that was it for me. Then I thought, okay, I want to learn from this guy um, or learn about this. And so, I, and then we discussed that we would try to do the audition, and yeah. and then I got in. So that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, cool. And yeah. so, like, it's funny. I feel like the story that you're telling me is most common for piano players mm-hmm. um yeah. like obviously I, I had Xavi Torres on the show and yeah. he's done like a very similar thing which is you know he went and studied in the classical department in parallel to his jazz studies and stuff mm-hmm. and and obviously uh just before the interview we would before we started talking we were talking about Kaya uh, Draxler who's like similar story she studied jazz and then she moved to contemporary classical composition yeah like is it do you think it has to do with um Partly to do with the rich repertoire that there is for like piano in the classical thing. It's it's so uh, it's it's such a big world that is so beautiful. So uh, it's very easy to just love that, I guess. So uh, I mean, um, or at least like I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to be kind of cautious, but like for example, when you're going to study classical bass, 
I mean, their their repertoire can be sometimes like uh, not as rich as what people as say. It's not as much stuff. No, that's true. Um, <laughs> um, but so so maybe if you if you'd compare that, then then the answer to your yeah. question is uh, is clear. I always feel like the I feel like I've probably said this on the show before, but I always feel like the the prime example that I like to use is the saxophone because to me, yeah, like classical saxophone repertoire there is obviously a lot of stuff in contemporary music and um a lot of things have been transcribed from mm -hmm. cello pieces to the saxophone and all that kind of stuff but to me there's a sense of if you're playing classical saxophone like the things that you're learning are not 100 applicable to your jazz saxophone performance yeah, it could be um because there's a specific sound that you need to get yeah and that that sound just typically isn't what we expect from a jazz performer. And therefore, I feel like there's something kind of counterproductive about trying to balance those two things. Maybe I'm completely wrong, and I'm sure there's people out there that are uh, <laughs> screaming right now. <laughs> but whereas I feel like the the parallel, especially with like modern like jazz and improvised music, yeah. piano playing, there's a parallel that's very clear to me, like directly from people like Keith Jarrett and Brad Meldau and all yes. those people like it's very clear okay well these guys have got this classical thing behind them and that is 100% translatable to the way they play yeah although I do know a saxophone player now in, in the conservatory that did classical before and uh, something you hear with him is that he's always in tune which is quite amazing yeah no for sure uh, and and I guess like now maybe now there is more freedom for saxophone sound uh, also there to maybe apply some of the saxophone uh, sound that they get from classical uh, Yeah, uh, for training. sure. And I think there's a lot of people coming out of, like, for example, the Conservatory in Paris has got a lot of guys that come out playing saxophone with yeah. a kind of... Also because I think the classical saxophone department in Paris is very strong. So there's yeah. something there. But And yeah, maybe I've just said something completely terrible. But, <laughs> no, um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, so... I suppose we we should probably talk specifically about the record and um, and maybe the interesting way to bridge that gap is I was reading in your liner notes I suppose that that you sent me that yeah uh, th that there's a you see a parallel between the repertoire that's on this record and um, Prokofiev's Vision Fugitive right yes um, can you explain a bit what that is I mean obviously I read it but people are um, um, well, I was I was thinking uh, about it, and it's it's something that I thought of after writing. Okay. So it's it's like a more of a reflective thought. Um, but um, I was studying the Vision Fugitive, and um, it's it's amazing, amazing pieces. Um, but just the name already, Vision Fugitive, is some like uh, fleeting visions or yeah. whatever, and it it's almost like uh, what I uh, imagine a dream is. Mm -hmm. um, and the pieces that I wrote for this record are all quite short, uh, yeah. and um, they're meant to be intense in atmosphere. And um, yeah, I, that's where I kind of made the parallel. So I thought, oh yeah, this is it's meant to be experienced very intensely in the moment, and then later, already before you know it, it's it's done, and then you kind of think like, huh, what happened? Yeah, that's that's kind of what I meant um, as an experience with the audience. Yeah, but so did you go into this like knowing, okay, I want a collection of whatever it is, 14, 15 tracks that are going to be two to three minutes long? Like was that was that a clear like design principle for you or did that just happen somehow? Um, a bit of both, I think. Um, in the beginning, it, 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 the beginning, the few, first few, I kind of just was writing and there were, there were actually sketches. And then at some point it became six or seven and I thought, hey, this is nice and maybe nice to try to make a set of compositions like a classical composer would. Yeah, okay. Um, to kind of uh, search for contrast also in composition. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's, I guess, the, 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 um, the assignment that I gave myself when writing. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, I mean, I'll, there's a lot of things that we could be talking about, but like, I feel like one thing that's connected to what we just mentioned is none of the pieces have specific titles. Is that correct? Like yes. they're basically numbered. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because like the way you just speak about it, there's all, there's a lot of imagery in your mind and yet you kind of took this untitled one, untitled two, untitled three approach right. to the, to yeah. the naming convention. Yeah. Like, what 
can you explain that to me a bit? Like, what what is it? Is it that I mean, I I approve to be clear because <laughs> nothing annoys me more than to look at a jazz musician's record and see like some evocative title right. involving the moon or the sun or mm-hmm. whatever, and to clearly know that that piece started out as sketch number one, sketch number two, sketch number three, yeah. and they just later on added a title that had no connection to it. Mm-hmm. Did you just decide to skip that step, or like? Uh, well. Yes and no, um, especially after after I've decided, okay, this is going to be a set of compositions, then I thought, okay, it's it's nice to give them numbers. And I was actually inspired by um, the way that uh, Debussy uh, writes the titles at the end of the prelude uh, yeah. in his books. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I believe he, he did that because he didn't want to um, create an image before someone listened to the, the piece yeah. so that they could have their own imagination uh, fill in whatever... Uh, whatever they wanted, and I, I really believe that too. That if you if you don't give a lot of of uh, visual connections to a, to a piece before you listen to it, then the imagination of someone in the audience can be far greater than you can imagine, probably. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that idea, so that's yeah. that's why I didn't um, I didn't decide to title them. No, that makes yeah. sense. I re- I remember. Um playing a show in France and um, this was with Catrio and most of our titles are like in a random language that is usually not French <laughs> and that, that like a friend of mine came to me after the show and he was giving me all this like super detailed imagery about what he thought certain pieces were about yeah. and if he had understood the language which was mostly Icelandic and some of it was English and stuff if he'd understood I feel like he would have had that experience that you just described which is that he before you start playing he already knows what's supposed to be there and you get yeah. a much cool to experience that way that's very cool yeah can you tell me a bit about um a bit about the piano trio itself um before we talk about your bandmates which obviously i want to get to i'm interested in the just the kind of idea of the piano trio as a format um it's it seems like the obvious thing when you're a piano player i suppose to have your piano trio and you've been playing with these guys for what like five six years or something Five six years about that yeah so of course, they're, they're, there's more to it than just "Hey, I want a piano trio," and that's cool. But um, like, what is that? Not super intimidating. I feel like I'd be. I mean, I play with a bunch of piano trios, so maybe I'm I'm talking out of my ass. But the yeah, piano trio yeah. has got such a rich tradition to it. Yeah. Uh, is there not something intimidating about that? And what do you feel? What is it that makes you want to play in this lineup? I suppose. Um, yes, it can be intimidating uh, for sure. Um, and how it happened, how we how we met, I guess, was very natural and kind of just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, before starting the first record, before recording that record, we we really realized that this was serious, and we had to uh, place ourselves in in this tradition of all the other piano trios. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Um, yeah, so I guess that really um, made me decide to use only original compositions because I, I um, because of course before that, like I said, I was very much into the tradition. Yeah. So it was it would have been kind of logical to record maybe some standards, mm-hmm. um, but at that point I did decide that if I would do that, that I would really uh, be comparing myself to whatever yeah. I, I had heard uh, from all the all the great piano trios. Yeah. So I didn't want to do that. And by doing that, uh, by making that decision, um, I guess the pressure was was less at yeah, least okay. at the first in the first record. And then yeah, um like a whole the whole of course you notice there are so many piano trios and you notice also when you try to book concerts and this kind of stuff. Yeah, most festivals will say I've already got two piano trios, I don't need yours. Right. Uh, most bookers or management labels, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um actually though that the the first record was a result of of like a sort of weird prize that we won. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of okay, now you have to make a record. Yeah. Which was also a good um good um like how do you say that uh, foot in the door is that is that correct? yeah that's a, <laughs> i suppose that's a way yeah sure um so so there was there was of course the pressure but we had to so it happened and then we we kind of went over that uh um yeah we got over that 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 fear yeah um yeah yeah 
Cool. And so can, can you tell me, yeah, let, let's speak specifically about your bandmates a bit. Like, yeah, uh, sure. tell me who they are and what... Uh... Um, so uh, on bass, um, we play with Thijs Klaassen. Yep. Um, and he is, uh, I know him now for almost seven years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's actually just going to release his own record. Uh, he won this prize in December and he's yeah. going to release his record in uh, in the next year. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're great friends uh, already from the beginning when we started studying together. We were very interested in the same music and lately also very interested in modern classical music yeah. uh, together. So that's where we... We meet stylistically, um, mm-hmm. and he's he's great with the bow, yeah, which true. I which I love. Um, I, I I well that I really love that, and he's also a great composer, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, so it's it's very nice to have him in the band. He's kind of like a if I write something and I'm I'm, I'm sometimes I would just write something to finish it, and then he would be the one to say, well, you know, maybe you should think about that again. <laughs> and that's that's great because he's always uh, he's always on point with that. Yeah, um, it's the bluntness of bass players. <laughs> it's just part of our personality. Somehow. Although it's it's he always says it in a very nice way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he he's really um, I measure my my like quality in music when I when I'm looking at him when I'm thinking about him what he would like. Yeah. And there's always this kind of uh, second layer to everything, and that's that's I, I really like that. Cool. Um, and then on drums, I play with uh, Wouter Kühne, yeah, who is um, a fantastic drummer, and uh, he's playing a lot now. Thijs mm-hmm. is also playing a lot right now. Yeah, but, they're busy guys. Uh, and and Wouter um, has been also very active on the scene since he was uh, very young already, like eighteen. Yeah, uh, playing with the, with everyone basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently he got into. Uh, we actually lived together. Uh, lived together for a while, so okay. that, was, that was great. Um, yeah. And then he would also practice like crazy. It was was very nice to see. Very inspiring. And he's recently got into uh, sabar, which is uh, an African instrument, Senegalese yeah. instrument. Yeah, and uh, that's he impl- he kind of uses that in his jazz playing, which is really really amazing. I think that's yeah. uh, something I really I really like. I really relate to. It's it's kind of about stretching time uh, and playing something that is not in the grid. Yeah, uh, which I which I really love, and I hear that in Elvin Jones, for example. We both yeah, love absolutely. Elvin Jones, so yeah. Um, yeah, that's we we meet musically very have also very similar tastes in music, so that works very well. Cool, uh, and so yeah, the album is called Synesthesia. I don't know if we've mentioned that yet, but uh, we should. Yes, <laughs> uh, it's called Synesthesia, <laughs> uh, and that is probably the uh, the that's an incredibly evocative title for an album that then follows with a bunch of numbers. So yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose that's the one thing that you can latch onto, and it. Uh, uh, yeah, can you speak a bit to the principle of, of synesthesia? It, it's something sure. that is, like you just mentioned Elvin Jones, who as far as I understood is somebody who had, who experienced like sound in colors. Yeah. I think that's a fairly common thing. Like Mission had a similar thing. Uh, I believe so. Thing. Rimbaud is another guy that people speak about when whenever they speak about synesthesia. But mm. yeah, do you want to explain a bit about what yeah. it is about synesthesia that's inspiring to you and... and well, of course. So, <laughs> while not having to title all the songs, I did have to title the album. Yeah, so, sure. <laughs> uh, I was thinking long and hard about that, <laughs> um, and it kind of came uh, from this thing that, um, first of all, the the strong atmospheres of every of every song. Um, when we were playing them in, in before we recorded, people would come up to us and, and say that they they experienced uh, like a like a trip uh, in their minds. Um, and, and that was so. I, so that I was thinking about that. Oh, the songs—they do that to some people. And then a friend of mine um, actually introduced me to Tariq Bari, which is uh, um, audiovisual composer, and mm-hmm. he works together. He's now famous because he works together with Tom York. Yeah. Um, and he, well, he introduced me to his work, and I, I checked it out. And I was just so uh, inspired by um, these visuals created uh, with software that was created by sound. So, is it literally? Sorry, uh, mm-hmm. is it literally spectrum analysis 
just displayed. That's kind of what it looks like it to me. It kind of is. Um, it kind of is, but I'm not sure. I mean, he's of course uh, he's he's very uh, he he goes into super detailed uh, software creation, yeah, and okay. he is very much into not only. Having a no, direct, that makes that makes sense yeah. because it, it doesn't just look like a, a spectrometer, but it yeah. it feels like that's the base material for yes, it. I um, believe so too. Uh, yeah. It's very cool. I encourage people to go uh, look at that stuff because yeah, really what cool. I liked especially about it is that it doesn't look so digital. No, um, but it is digital. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that that really was inspiring to me. Um, and so actually, we worked together with him for the uh, cover art. Yeah. Um, and then all those things just came together, and then I thought, wait, that's it, uh, synesthesia. Yeah, that's what it's about. Cool. And so there's also, um, as far as I understood, there's also a visual component to your live performance. Yeah. Now, uh, can you discuss that a bit? You have live visuals. Uh, yeah. So for the for the release show in the BIM house, we wanted to do something special. So we decided to um, also work together with a visual artist, mm-hmm. and also an audiovisual composer. Uh, his name is Jaromir Mulders. And um, yeah, that was that was a great collaboration. Uh, we we rehearsed a few times, and then every time he would show us new things that he would have programmed, and he basically programmed the whole system for every song, and then mm. according to what he thought it should look like. I really wanted to give him that freedom, also. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so in in the end, uh, of course, it was a super exciting evening. So I didn't really. Uh, experience everything, <laughs> but uh, yeah. we we got a video, and I, I believe it was a it was yeah. a success. I believe people liked it. But so, is there is there a component of him as a four, like? It sounds like that's not the case, but like as a fourth band member kind of idea. Yeah, um, that is obviously the case from the audience perspective. But for you on stage, like, how aware are you of what's happening on screen, and how well, much is that influencing what you're doing? Yeah, actually, we decided kind of to stay a little bit. Um, passive in that in that sense because in some rehearsals we did try to have a more active role yeah. but then we noticed that it became a little sloppy uh, which was cool but for the BIM house uh, yeah. we wanted to kind of um, have a more passive role towards the screen but of course he would react to what he heard yeah. and he would be able to do also some live uh, uh, adjustments to how sharp the, the, the visuals react to the sound and yeah, uh, and the intensity of the music. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would absolutely react to everything. Yeah. Is he using like actual audio inputs, like, or is it? Um, yeah. So he's use he has microphones on stage. Yes. And he's, uh, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Um, so the the next uh, the next obvious thing to talk about, I suppose, is uh, the album is not strictly piano trio. Um, there's two extra things. There is vocals and there is also synthesizer. I don't know in which order you want to touch on those things. <laughs> but um, yeah. I think that, I think what I read, maybe let's talk about the synthesizer real quick because mm-hmm. um, uh, it's a couple of pieces that, that feature synth. And what I read is that it was the quality of the human voice that brought you to want to use the synthesizer. Can, yes. you, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Well, actually, in my traditional phase... Um, I was very jealous of saxophone players yeah. as a piano player. Um, very, very jealous. At some point, I, I thought, "Oh man, I, I'm not sure if I should, uh, you know, if I should switch or something." But of course, I didn't do that. Um, mm-hmm. But then, at some point, I heard um, Sam Harris on the record that Ben Vergelder made, the last one. Yeah, um, and I heard him play some. Oh no, no, it's not the last one. Sorry, I heard his record. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was checking him out because I heard the record of Ben Gelder. Yeah. Um and he has a few tracks with only synthesizer with the Juno that I also use and it, I thought the sound was so nice like for the first time I really thought wow this sound is so great yeah. um, so that's actually where it started for me and I got one um, and then yes I realized why I like that sound so much is because it's very similar to to a voice or maybe yeah. sex like like in the way that saxophone is also similar to a voice. Yeah. Um so yeah, so that's that's where that started. 
It's interesting. Like I feel like I've heard that from piano players before that they the one thing that they regret about their instrument is a lack of variety in yeah. Dambolo, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, I suppose using synthesis uh, allows you to overcome that. But so how? Um, like it's a few tracks on the record. It's not like massively featured. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you plan to implement more? Are you exploring it more in detail? Uh, yes, I, I later um, I, I kind of realized that it's it's uh, the whole record is kind of a mashup all of all these uh, ideas that are not maybe related to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know if I would say that. By the way, like it's, oh, okay, there's there's. Like I say, there's two or three pieces that that have synth on them, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say that they, even if like uh, stylistically speaking, they maybe jar a bit from the rest. There's still a vibe that's there. I don't know. Oh yeah. Well, I I agree with that. I feel also that it's this. It's the. It's coming from the same uh, jar or whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, I do think that I might uh, decide to make it. Uh, split projects like uh, the synth thing and the piano thing well, although I'm not sure I like the combination too um, mm-hmm. at the BIM house it was very very nice to to play synth and then kind of be finished with that sound and then go back to the piano yeah. uh, and, and then have the piano sound very uh, warm again yeah. uh, for the audience I think it's it's nice I was thinking a lot about uh, like attention span uh, mm-hmm. of, of people in, in the audience Um I think that people's attention span is very low, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's very short. I mean, yeah. sorry. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that that helps a lot. I think we played for an hour, but I heard from a lot of people like, yeah, it was kind of short, and mm. uh, which which was something I wanted to achieve. So that was cool. Yeah, yeah, cool. And so yeah. Um, to keep talking about synthesizers a bit longer, because yeah. obviously I'm I'm quite excited about synthesizers yes. myself. But um, what I like, I think, about what I heard um, on your record is that there's no like the fact that you add a synthesizer doesn't impose any stylistic constraints to the music. Yeah, uh, which is nice because I feel like the most common thing in the world is as soon as a piano player gets either an actual synthesizer or a Volator or a Rhodes or whatever, mm-hmm. suddenly they're playing R and B music or whatever, yeah, <laughs> uh, or their Snarky Puppy or their whatever, and like no diss to any of that because that's great, but it feels so common that like okay now I've got a synth so I have to play groove music, yeah, um, and I take it that that's not the direction that you want to go in, <laughs> not so um, much. Although I love that music. No, of course, uh, so do I. I mean, yeah. I, I make a lot of it, so I, I shouldn't be uh, complaining about it. But it, <laughs> it's interesting that the tool does not dictate the the output. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, um, I think there's a lot of room in my, maybe like a modern classical idiom for synthesizer. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of that. Yeah. So that's, I, I guess that's kind of where I, where I was looking to. Mm-hmm. Um, and also with the piano music, so maybe that's the yeah, that's the overlap. Is that something that you're particularly familiar with, like all of the earcam stuff? And no, like, no, 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 yeah. no, not at all. Actually, I'm I'm just getting into it. Um, really, uh, I mean, actually, also the repertoire for classical music. I'm I'm not at all familiar, or yeah. I'm, not, I'm not an expert or anything. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, I'm really trying to dive in right now to find uh, find stuff. Yeah, but that's cool. I mean, I suppose. The the root of that question for me is maybe it's super common for jazz musicians who are into classical music and contemporary music to basically stop at Stravinsky. Yeah. Or, I mean, stop at Stravinsky, Messiaen or whatever, you know. And then as soon as it goes further than that, then they don't, they haven't heard of the names anymore and they don't care for the music necessarily. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, I think at the time Stravinsky was making music, there were people on the other side of the ocean that were, and on the same side of the ocean when he actually moved to the States, uh, that were directly connected between the jazz world and his music. Yeah. Uh, And probably the same goes for Debussy and that kind of stuff. Like there's clear connections there. Whereas later on, that's less the case. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. I'm getting into the weeds a bit maybe. um, (laughs) Well, I I mean... um, I think that I I was very inspired by by Debussy and Prokofiev uh, especially also um and uh for this record. Yeah. 
but I did realize that also while yeah. writing and um, also realized that I really had to try to to change things uh, mm-hmm. in a certain way so that I didn't um, so that it doesn't look too much or sound too much like something that I just took from DBC or or whatever um, but that that process uh, got me into uh, more maybe intuitive uh, uh, composing process yeah um, which which I like a lot um, so I wouldn't say there are no inf- not not a lot of influences but at least there was some certain parts of the music which really don't at least I don't relate to something else, and certain other parts though that really do yeah. come almost literally from yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, classical music. But I mean, it's it's all about the way you take those like yeah those elements and bring them into some an improvised format, right? Yeah. Like playing, uh, like playing a chart that was written by Stravinsky is very different than improvising something in the style of Stravinsky. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. So that's I suppose that's where there's still a gold mine that hasn't necessarily been explored. That's a uh, that's a super interesting subject. Uh, the thing with improvisation in classical music, um, actually, something that really got me. I was reading this um, John Zorn book. Yeah. Um, it's all these small essays, and one of them was by V.J. Iyer, and he wrote about improvisation and like he kind of questioned if you would be able to hear if something was improvised or not. Yeah. Um, and his conclusion was that you can't hear it. Yeah. Um, and he would talk about, for example, classical musicians telling each other, hey, you should play that like you're improvising. Mm-hmm. And that's something that happens. We, we do like a group lesson uh, every week in the classical department. And people say that about Debussy or Ravel, like you should play it like you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's so, uh, I, can't, I can't really, uh, I don't know what to think of that. I mean, it, it raises a lot of questions because... Then I think, oh, but if I do improvise something, it can also probably not sound improvised. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. So, um, so for the record, I was I was thinking about this a lot. Um, some of the pieces are composed yeah. in that sense, and some. It's, it's interesting because there, I suppose, you're also dealing with obviously you're dealing with audience perception yeah. and um, how much, how necessary is it to let people in on the process for them to. Like, w- does that actually enrich the experience for somebody? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I no. know that from experience with the work we do with Tin Men is there is always a sense of the the clearer it is to the audience what is happening, the more impressive it actually is. Yeah, yeah uh, I can imagine. There's a risk. I mean, it's it's a typical thing, right? But there's always that risk of making things seem too easy. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, it's it's possible to make it seem like you're cheating to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so showing that it's to the point of actually literally having to take risks to the point of making mistakes that that almost becomes more impressive somehow. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, that it's, it's similar with the Tin Man. I I really, I think that's such a cool thing um, that you, that you really um, make the audience participate in the music making. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it actually inspired me a lot to do also the visuals during the concert mm-hmm. uh, because I thought that it would make the music more accessible, which I don't think is a bad thing, actually. No, of course not. I mean, that, that is, uh, that's just grumpy old men who think that things should not be accessible, I right. think, right? Yeah. Um, or, I don't know, some form of elitism or... Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, exactly. If people, if people are understanding the music uh, easier and, and they experience more because of the visuals, that's, that's great, I think. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, I can't. I I only saw some still imagery of of the visuals that you used, so I can't speak to actually what the experience mm. must have been like. But uh, and that's why what I'm about to say is terrible. But uh, it's a, it can sometimes kind of be the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I suppose it can go both ways. Like you could probably show people really abstract imagery that they would not if they would not sit in silence and watch this. Mm-hmm. You know, but you can expose them to something incredible visually while giving them something else, uh, musically speaking and vice versa, you know, yeah. we have, I've played shows for, for children, like super complex music that, mm. and at the end of the show, you tell them, Hey, do you realize you were just listening to jazz? And they had no idea. Yeah. And if you didn't tell them that, then they would have gone home happy, but then yeah. <laughs> you, you use the J word and everything falls apart. But you know, um, that is an interesting thing to, to think about. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, funny. 
So uh, there is, uh, we we didn't actually speak about the vocal uh, thing oh, yeah. in the end. So you you have two different uh, vocal uh, yes. moments on the record. Yeah. One is a is a choir piece, and the other one is actual like lyrical uh, yeah. vocals. Do you want to explain a bit? Yeah. About that? So uh, the choir piece, in short, is uh, was one of the the first uh, songs that I wrote, uh, and it's a it's a prelude um, that. Uh, actually just was was a part of it is very um thought out mm-hmm. so without any sound um image or sound imagination or whatever yeah. in my head um and that became a duo with the synthesizer and and the choir so it doesn't have any text yeah. um yes and i really i really thought that was a, a, a nice so nice to work with the singers um and yeah, so there I also relate the synthesizer to the voice, of yeah. course. Um, and then the other uh, song is uh, actually a poem by an, uh, Rhonda Peters, is her name. She's a poet from Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And she's actually a scenarist. I don't know how to say that in English. Like a, someone who writes scenarios for plays. Yeah, and I mean, we, we say playwright. Oh, playwright, yes. Or, or screenwriter if it's yeah. for um, movies. So, and she wrote a poem uh, for me uh, that I then wrote music to yeah. as kind of a, it was in, first it was like an exercise. Um, and then I was kind of thinking of how to use this. And then I decided, oh, maybe it would be, it would be nice to have a classical singer mm-hmm. to sing this because it's in Dutch. Yeah. Um, and the Dutch language can be... Uh, Awkward when sung, in my experience. Um, so I thought it, a classical voice would make it less awkward. Okay. Um, which was the first uh, reason why I <laughs> that, chose classical voice. That's a fascinating voice. reason. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then it was. It, it turned out uh, the singer Janneke Stoute, who sings it, sings it so beautifully. Um, so that it turned out really nice, and we played together with the trio. Yeah. Um, that's actually one completely composed. Actually, the the melody is composed. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and then the trio kind of improvises and the harmonies are kind of kind of uh, improvised, um, um, and yeah, it was it was a great experience to actually write music on words. Yeah, it changed uh, changed uh, my my ideas. But so was that a collaborative process or was it? Uh, I mean, the the poem was written with the idea of this is going to be set to music, or was yes. it? Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, this uh, yeah, it was, and it's about music. Actually, it's about love and music. Yeah. Um, but I did want to have Rhonda uh, taking her freedom and to write about what she wanted to write about, mm-hmm. and then also have absolute freedom myself. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, <laughs> I met her only once in real in real life. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was kind of a cool uh, because well busy busy schedules. Um, yeah. And um, it was it was kind of a funny uh, funny collaboration in that sense. But so what um, what was her, her take on it? Like now that she's presumably heard the yes, final she version. Yes, uh, well, I think she likes it a lot. Yeah, but I I'm yet to hear uh, in from her in person actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, with Facebook and all this stuff, you of course, yeah, she's. I think she likes it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, there's just a couple more things I want to touch on. One of them is that um, you you used crowdfunding for this record. I is did. That correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, first of all, why turn to crowdfunding? I suppose there's some obvious answers to that question, but maybe more importantly, I feel like crowdfunding for the purposes of making a record is something that is kind of going away. Is it? That's my my feeling. Okay. <laughs> maybe I'm completely wrong about that, but. I feel like that is a market that has been kind of overtapped at this point, and that, yes, could uh, be. That I don't. I mean, at least I don't. Maybe I'm just not around the right people anymore. But I don't feel like I see that happening anywhere near as much as, as it, it was to. for a while. Yeah. Um, how How was your experience of of doing that? And and well, I mean, it's amazing that that people just give you their money. That's yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> it makes you think, would I give myself that money? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, 
I think that um, you have to kind of push yourself over this boundary of, of kind of being ashamed of selling yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and crowdfunding has to do with that also. Um, and of course, yeah, we, we, didn't, we didn't get some other money stuff, so then we kind of had to. It was quite a big project with the choir and with the other singer, and uh, we were there were some we we were five days in the studio or something like this. Yeah. So it was quite uh, it it was going to cost a lot, and we did finals, so that was also expensive. Yeah. Um. So we didn't really have another option. Um, and yeah, during the crowdfunding, it was very stressful actually uh, for me uh, because I I had the feeling that we wouldn't uh, make it. We also had quite a big uh, yeah. Uh, goal yeah. quite a high goal um so it, it surprised me actually that we did but I, I put in a lot of work and my father actually put in a lot of work also to spread yeah. it around mm-hmm. um so yeah um I'm, I'm, I'm very happy but so like was that do you i mean you probably have insight into this now um yeah how much of it was basically just a pre-order system for the record how much of it was just people saying i will give you 20 bucks to get the record when it eventually is made and how much of it was people just having like the general sense of i'm going to be a patron of the arts and i'm going to donate to this thing most most people that donated did pre-order the record in that way and there were some that we did like a free tickets for the release show and there were those were gone but in no time yeah um and then there there are the bookings uh that that people do and that that's like was kind of organizations that actually already kind of expressed their interest in booking us and then i kind of turned them to our crowdfunding page okay to do it like that um so yes there there are people that that buy your cd beforehand but yeah the selling cd thing it, it's really dying i think yeah no absolutely <laughs> um, um so uh yeah i suppose that like there follows the question why make a record at all yeah well i mean you have to make something i think um i think that the classical composers um their way of writing music and and, and publishing it i think that's something i very i relate to very much and then for now it's for me, it's the same as kind of as making a record. Mm-hmm. It's kind of publishing music and it's leaving something for the future. Yeah, um, that's the that's the 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 real reason to do it. I think. Yeah, for that's me. a much less pragmatic answer than I would have expected. <laughs> like typically, it's well, I called a bunch of venues and they said I didn't have a CD, so I couldn't play there. That's and, also true. <laughs> uh, yeah. But no, I admire I admire the the fact that you you approach it first from the standpoint of uh creating something and leaving it for posterity and second yeah. from the standpoint of it's a necessary kind of business card. Yes, well, it is, but then when it is that necessary business card, then you better. <laughs> uh, you might you as well it. make you might as well make something nice, you yeah. know. No, that's definitely true. Yeah. Um is there is there any other stuff that you want to mention that we haven't touched upon? I don't know if there's any stuff you're up to as a sideman or any like, um, upcoming projects and things that you want to talk about. Um, I have to think about that. Um, no, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on on playing classical piano for for two more years. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and um, but just, is that something that you actually plan to do? Like, do you perform uh, outside of the context of being in school and and playing? there i suppose like is that something that you want to do like actually perform in concert halls and and not now no not really um maybe later Mm -hmm. maybe later i will decide to 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 try that but i mean when you're in the group lesson uh, on on the friday uh, afternoon and you see your classmates who are younger than you (laughs) and you think wow this is just amazing yeah i mean it's it's very I don't. I also don't feel the the need to perform that music. I mean, it's really uh, the music itself is is so rich, and it, it gives me a lot to just study it. Yeah, basically. And then when I'm performing, it's it's also safe, I guess, to perform my own music. Yeah. But at the same time, um, it's also a necessity, I guess. Yeah. To uh, to create something of yourself, um, and also I'm not, I'm not always sure why. Why I would, why someone would actually perform classical music like as a only as a profession, you know, like 
Yeah. Only classic, only someone else's music. I yeah. think I would be very unhappy. I know that's what steered me away from. I mean, there was a time when I had to choose between becoming a classical trombone player and pursuing jazz music. Yeah. And I, there was no doubt in my mind what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's no, uh, obviously, um, that doesn't say anything about the incredible uh, job that classical musicians do, but indeed it's, Absolutely. Uh, it requires a specific form of discipline and I suppose a certain amount of selflessness to yes. do, right? Yes, but, and, and also the performance itself is so demanding, um, can be so demanding. I think that like your whole life would, would have to really very like one one uh, direction have to in one direction have to revolve around this whole piano yeah. playing and i've seen interviews with like someone like Trivonov mm-hmm. who is one of the young piano players that is a star now yeah and he's just uh, he he literally said he doesn't have time to do anything else but play the piano yeah and i thought wow okay i'm not sure if that's uh, yeah that's good for art or <laughs> but um it wouldn't i would be unhappy no that's the I, first I, that's the first reason yeah. why i wouldn't i suppose there's a there's a parallel to be drawn with like professional uh, athletes right yes so like it's absolutely um except maybe you've got a slightly longer career to look forward to yeah. uh than somebody who at the age of 25 is already too old to do whatever it is yeah. that they do. or or indeed like dancers or whatever it is so, like, yeah. there's a um yeah there's more money in classical music though that's true. Um, that's very true. <laughs> Sadly, I'm, I'm distinctly aware of that. Uh, there's basically more money in every form of music besides the form of music that we make. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm always very pained when I hear about the invoices that my classical musician mm-hmm. friends are sending. Yeah. Um, or yep. more, they are always shocked when they find out what kind of invoices I'm sending. Yes. Um, but, you know, we do what you've got to do, I suppose. Yeah, so then we have to be like entrepreneurs uh, at the same time uh, to to earn a little bit money. Yeah, uh, and um, that's also something of this time, I think. But it's it's cool. It's cool, I think. Yeah, is that something that you are like comfortable with? The fact that you have to sell and that you have to like chase after the work and the gigs and stuff. Yes, I think so. Uh, I do a lot of work yeah. in that sense. Um, I think it's one of the big reasons that that uh, the trio is playing uh, a lot is because I I send a lot of emails. Yeah, I mean, uh, no nobody's band plays if there's not somebody doing that. Right? That right. just does not exist. Yeah, um, but lately it's it's kind of affecting my music, especially the classical study. So lately I've been thinking about maybe trying to find someone to do it, or uh, or at least uh, putting it on a hold for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's difficult yeah. to delegate these things when you don't have a budget to start with. <laughs> like, yes. I know that that's yeah. always the problem is like, yes. I can't afford to pay somebody to do any of this stuff. So they end up yeah. doing, which is good because then you become, but it's a bit of the like jack of all trades, mm-hmm. master of none situation, right? Yeah. That you, um, yeah, that's, that's a scary thing. Actually, it's the same with becoming a classical pianist or a jazz pianist. Sometimes it feels like that. Yeah. Like it feels a little scary. Like, should I? Shouldn't I be improvising right now, like the whole day? <laughs> <laughs> but surely there's more transferable skills between yes. a classical piano yeah, player and a jazz piano player than there are yeah. between a social media manager and a booking agent or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, well, as you know, uh, I always like to end these conversations by asking my guests to recommend something for people to check out. Um, yeah. As far as I understood, you've actually listened to the show before, so you actually knew this question was coming. So what what should people check out? Well, uh, I was I actually already men- mentioned uh, Tariq, so uh, Tariq Body, who did our artwork, you should really check him out if you don't yeah, know his absolutely. stuff. Um, it's just, he has a website and there's like great stuff to, to, to see on that, all the videos, all the audios. Um, uh, but I already mentioned him, so I was reading a book. Um, I just started reading a book called uh, "The Death of Ivan Ilyich" by Tolstoy, which okay. is yeah, uh, sure. which I really thought was so funny. Um, mm-hmm. It's um, it's the first <laughs> book of Tolstoy that I'm reading, and I, I just uh, I have I've really I'm really enjoying it a lot more than I've enjoyed reading books for, for quite a while. So. Yeah, okay. It's it's uh it's something to check out maybe. Oh, so check out the humor of Tolstoy, yes. Yeah, let's um, do it. <laughs> the Russian humor, it's like it's like so dark. Yeah, well that's, that's for sure. That's yeah. something I kind of relate to a little bit. Cool. Uh Flores, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks. 
You'll be hearing more music from Flawless in just a moment. Many thanks to my fellow members of Catrio for providing the intro and outro music. Please subscribe to Sound the Moment wherever it is that you like to get your podcasts. You can leave a favorable review or rating if you enjoy the show. That is really helpful to me. And if you know anybody else who would be interested and doesn't already listen, please do let them know. Word of mouth is really kind of the best way for me to expand the listenership and spread the word about all these great artists and their music. Please go to patreon.com slash if you would like to make a donation on either a one-off or a monthly basis. That is incredibly helpful with keeping the uh, show running and covering all of my costs. So any amount is great. Thanks to all of you who already are donating. You can reach me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can message me via the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook. And you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. We're going to end today with another track from Flores Cabana off of Synesthesia. This is number four. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment. <laughs>